Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This Palm Sunday morning, we're entering the Passion Week. We're going to spend this week in John's Gospel. So we're going to look this morning at the triumphal entry from John 12. Then later in the week from John's Gospel, we'll see the last Passover. We'll do that on Good Friday. Um, so I want to encourage you to join us. That'll be a virtual service online there in your home. You'll want to prepare the elements so that you and your family can partake of communion in, in your home together. So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, Pastor Jeremy's going to participate with us. Pastor Ryan will participate. I'll be leading a devotional that evening, all virtually, all online. Join us in that way. I've said so often that you... You really can't fully appreciate the resurrection on Sunday until you've contemplated the death on Friday. So we need to do this. And so uh, I really want to encourage you to participate in that. And then um, on Easter weekend, Saturday evening at 5, Sunday morning at 8, 9.30 and 11, we'll be looking at John 21. So we're, we're trying to stay in uh, John's gospel as we contemplate the resurrection uh, this Easter. But this morning, John 12, uh, verses 12 through uh, 19, this is the triumphal entry. Uh, this is kind of a hinge point in John's gospel. Uh, John 12, all the way to the end of John's gospel, is going to focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, it's interesting when you think about this and the gospel writers and the amount of attention they put on the final week of Jesus' life. Uh, he got 33 years of life with Jesus, three years of ministry, and yet the, the overwhelming majority of the Gospels all focus on this final week of Jesus. The question is why? Well, they do that very intentionally because everything else that you study in John's Gospel that precedes this is meaningless if you do not understand the purpose for which Christ came. you got to understand why he came. And what we're going to see in this passage this morning is a lot of people who didn't understand why Christ came. In fact, even uh, the disciples, it says here, John says the disciples didn't get it. They understood it later, but they didn't get it in this moment. They completely missed it. So you've got a lot of excitement. You've got a lot of passion. You've got worship. You even got, they're, they're quoting scripture. But a total misunderstanding because they lost sight of the reason for which Christ came. And, and listen, we are just as much in danger of making the same mistake. We must understand, we gotta be crystal clear about why Christ came. Because if we don't, what will end up happening is the same thing that happens here. When Jesus doesn't deliver on the goodies, when he doesn't act and behave the way we want him to, we'll walk away in disappointment. So we've got to be crystal clear this morning. So let's read this passage, then we'll pray, we'll, we'll work our way through it. Look with me, beginning in verse 12, John 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. 
For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we pray this morning as we study this text that you would open our eyes to the clear principles of your word and that nobody would be mistaken or confused about the purpose for which you came. Lord, our prayer is that today we would see Christ. Just as these Greeks who would come would say, we would see Jesus. That is our heart's desire this morning. We would see Jesus. Not as we want him to be, but as he really is. The humble king who comes to die. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always a bit awkward for me for just to jump into the midst of a gospel. So I'm going to do my best to kind of set the stage in the context of what is a, was occurring here. If you've read this chapter, many of you are very familiar with this. What precedes this, it's even mentioned here in these verses, that Lazarus has been just raised from the dead. And that has occurred just down the road in Bethany. We often think of these cities as being far apart. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that Bethany is only really about 400 yards away from the eastern side of Jerusalem. So just right down the road, uh, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And as you can imagine, when a guy comes back to life, it causes a stir. And many of the Jews were believing in Jesus. Kind of the thought was, if this guy has the power over life and death, if he can raise people from the dead, I think that's the kind of king I want. That's the kind of guy I'm willing to follow. So the people, for the most part, are very excited. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they hate Jesus. All this excitement has only angered them more and more about Christ, who's cutting in on their business and certainly doesn't speak highly of them. Uh, so not only do they want to kill Jesus, but they also want to kill Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus is evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. It's interesting. They got proof positive right in front of them. They can go talk to this guy who's been raised from death to life, which little side note here, but miracles never compel belief. Miracles never compel belief. These Pharisees have evidence, proof positive, a divine miracle has just incurred in their very presence, and yet they'll only move further in disbelief. And, and I know a lot of people who see somebody, spiritually speaking, in their life who is transferred from a place of spiritual death to a place of spiritual life, they see that divine miracle, and they will not bow to the one who changed that individual. They're only a lot of times move further into a place of disbelief. So miracles never compel belief. And so here are these Pharisees. They're upset. They want to kill Jesus. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem with a plot against him and a price on his head. And yet in spite of this, they've got this huge crowd. The, the numbers, the approximate numbers of the crowd vary. Uh, some say as little as 500,000. Uh, some say as much as 2 million. Whatever it was, it was a very large crowd that's all converging upon this city, Jerusalem, which in our day, in, our, in the midst of our context, would have been nothing more but a very small village. Huge, enormous crowd. And... and and about 90% of that crowd loves Jesus. They see him as a nationalistic hero. This is the guy, he, he has the power over life and death. He performs these divine miracles. And what they see is he's about to overthrow the Roman government. He's about to overthrow 400 years of oppression. He's going to set himself up as the rightful king over Israel. He's going to free us from bondage. Our life's going to be great and awesome. And so they're really excited. It's a rock concert. 
And then you got 10% of this crowd. They hate him and they want to kill him. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and this is important to note. He rides into Jerusalem at Passover. And uh, Passover was one of the three times of the year the entire nation would gather in Jerusalem. They would gather at Passover, they gathered at Pentecost, and they, they gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was, it was very similar to, to our 4th of July. It was the time of year, the Passover was the time of year that they would remember how God had freed them from the bondage of the Egyptians and the Egyptian slavery, and he had freed them by means of what? He had freed them by means of the blood of a lamb. And make no mistake about it, as you read this, Jesus is clearly presenting himself as the Passover lamb. In fact, later in the week, we'll study it as we contemplate the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus will take that last Passover and he will say, this is my body and this is my blood. But he didn't come to free them from the bondage of the Egyptians or the Romans. He came to free them from the greater bondage of sin, Satan, and death. So here is Jesus coming. And if you can picture this, uh, he's coming uh, from the east side, from Bethany. He's coming over the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, isn't uh, much uh, of a mountain. It's more like an Oklahoma hill, all right? And don't think Rocky Mountains, but a, but a small hill. He's coming over the, the Mount of Olives, and he's coming down through. He would go down through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Kidron Valley, and he's coming up, and he will enter through the Eastern Gate, now, why is that significant? It's significant because in Ezekiel chapter 11, you'll remember when God is bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel, the Babylonians are coming against them to destroy them, and the nation has rejected God. They don't want God. And so God, Ezekiel, has this picture of God leaving the temple, and, and through which gate does he leave? He leaves through the eastern gate. And then in Ezekiel 43, you remember he has another vision because God's not done with Israel, is he? And the glory of God re-enters through what gate? Through the eastern gate. And listen, every Jew who knew their Bible picked up on the imagery that's occurring here. That Jesus is setting himself up as the Messiah. They're, they're incredibly excited. You know what's interesting about that? If you go to Israel today, you know what's happened to the Eastern Gate? The Muslims have blocked it up. They've completely blocked it up. You can't enter through it. And they, then they put a graveyard in a bunch of tombs in front of that Eastern Gate because Jews don't like dead people. Why do they do this? Because they're trying to prevent Jesus from entering back through the Eastern Gate. And you know Jesus in heaven, he's just wringing his hands worried sick about how he's going to get back in there, you know? <laughs> But that's the picture. Here, you've got Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He's depicting himself as uh, the Passover lamb and the Messiah king. And so you can imagine the excitement of this nation. And in response, John's gospel and really all the gospel narratives tell us that the people did two things. They did more than this, but these are the two things I think is important. Really three things we need to see here. Number one, they wave palm branches. And this is why we always... Remember Palm Sunday is why we call it Palm Sunday. But they're waving these palm branches. Palm branches were the national symbol of Israel's sovereign identity. It was a symbol of God's blessing uh, upon the nation. The palm date was a source of food. Uh, it was a source of shade in a very uh, uh, arid place. It was a source of shade. It was also used for medicinal purposes. It was really at the heart of their entire economy. But it was a sign of God's blessing upon that nation. 
Uh, so it was a symbol. It was a national symbol of the nation. It would have been similar to our American flag. And so they're waving these palm branches here at Passover, which is a little bit interesting as I was researching this further. The palm branch is actually most, most associated with the Feast of Tabernacles when they would gather and they'd live in tents to remind them of their wandering Israel and then becoming a sovereign nation. Uh, but they wave them here at Passover. Why, why are they doing this? Because what they're doing is they're really compelling Jesus to assert his authority and rule. I kind of see this as they're kind of goading Jesus along to, listen, go into Jerusalem. This is our day. They're waving their flags. They're waving their palm branches. This is our day. Go into Jerusalem. Wipe out those Romans. Set yourself up as the authority. I, as I was thinking about this, to me, it's probably somewhat similar to a political rally. This is our candidate. This is our guy. We believe he can take us where we want to go. And what they're doing is they're impressing him. They're challenging him to do what they want him to do. To act how they want him to act. Not only are they waving palm branches, but they're quoting scripture. In verse 13, they say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Uh, most of you know that's a quotation from Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, there's an attempt to overthrow David as king. And you'll remember, by God's grace, God puts down that rebellion. And David reasserts himself as the rightful king. And David goes in the temple. And he goes to sacrifice and to rejoice at God's grace. And, and the people come out and they're shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, this is our rightful king. And they cry out, Hosanna, which just simply means, God save us. And so they're just caught up in really nationalistic fervor about this guy that they think is going to deliver them. He is their rightful king. And in fact, really, that's the third thing that they do that I made note of as I was saying this. They, they call him their king. And that's interesting because that was a treasonable act. For a Jew in that setting to openly wave a flag and point at anybody and say, he's our king... No Jew would have done that on their own. Why? Because the nearest Roman soldier would have dragged them off and charged them with treason. In fact, that's what they're going to accuse Jesus of, right? That, that's the rumor that this guy is setting himself up to the, be the king of the Jews. That will be the, uh, really the point of Pilate's interrogation of Jesus. Are you really the king of the Jews? So what we see here, just these people, I think the picture that you're intended to see, they're just caught up. In fact, I think most people, if you'd have stopped them in the middle of this, what are you doing? I don't really know. We're just excited about this guy. He's going to take us where we want to go. And, and remember, for 400 years, they've lived under the oppression of a pagan government. They're God's people. And yet they've lived under the oppression of the Romans. And all of a sudden, here is this guy who performs miracles. He's raising people from the dead. And then he starts coming over the Mount of Olives, down through the garden. And look, he's going through the eastern gate. And they're just, in, they're just worked up. This guy's going to do it. We're, we're about to see our freedom. The Romans are going to be, be put down. And you know what I thought is, what? How would I, if, if I were there, if I were in the place of Christ, how, how would I have responded? I mean, anybody that has political aspirations, 
So just think of your typical politician. And all of a sudden, the entire 90% of the nation's just saying, you're our guy. And they're excited, and they're pushing you forward. Yeah, you're our guy. You're going to overthrow. We're going to put you on the rightful throne. For any common politician, in fact, for most of us as just humans, that would have been the greatest day ever. These people love me. They want to make me their king. And yet Jesus has a much different response. And it's intentional. You, you, you can't miss this. The, the couple of things that I want, you, want to point out to you. Number one, Jesus, in response to all this, he rides in very intentionally. He rides in on a donkey. He rides in on a donkey. And the reference here is to Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah prophesies of a great king and a kingdom who's bringing judgment upon the nation. So if you read Zechariah 9, um, he's just working his way down closer. This great king and kingdom's just conquering all these nations, and he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. It would be like this nation working its way down from Iowa to St. Joe, and it's getting closer. But God says he's going to spare Jerusalem. And this king that Jerusalem will have, in contrast to this other great king and this other great kingdom, God's king, this king that would come for Jerusalem, he's not depicted as some great militaristic power. He comes in humility. He comes not on a white stallion, but he comes on the, the, uh, the colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, he's a humble king. And we know this. Kings don't tend to be very humble people. Kings don't tend to lay down their life for the people. They don't tend to wash men's feet. No, they exalt themselves. They look out for number one. But not this king, as we know in Scripture, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The kings of the earth don't tend to humble themselves to the point of death, even death on a cross. And they sure don't ride in on donkeys. They tend to ride in on white stallions like Alexander the Great or on tanks like Hitler or in limos like presidents. But not Israel's kings. Not our kings. Our king comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of king that I will follow. That's the kind of king that I want to serve and, and will give my life for. The one who is humble and lays down his life for the good of the people. And in fact, this was, this was prophesied about. And we're going to look at it pretty soon in Genesis 49. That you remember when Jacob's pronouncing his blessings upon his sons, he skips over Reuben and Simeon and he comes to Judah. And you'll remember he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And he says, He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Isn't this amazing? This is fulfilled prophecy from all the way back in Genesis 49 that the greatest king, listen to me, the greatest king in all the earth, the most powerful king, the king of all kings, his choice of transportation will be a donkey. He's a humble king who loves his people. Not only is he a humble king, but as you read this, you also clearly get the picture that he's an approachable king. And I love this because it, 
I wonder, why, why not just say a donkey? But he rides it on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, there's a couple of things about that. We don't have time to go into both of them. But a colt that's never been broken is impossible to ride, by the way. You, uh, any of you ever try to jump on a horse that's never been broke? It don't go well. But the last Adam, the king of all kings, no problem for him. But the second part about this is it's a colt, meaning it's a small donkey. It's almost like a normal donkey wasn't low enough. He had to get on a really small donkey. And it's a picture of his humility. And and the fact that Jesus always wanted to be near the people. And, and, and he was approachable. The only people who ever received a rebuke for Jesus were the proud, the arrogant, and the religious. But if you were oppressed, if you were confused, if you were messed up and hurting, he had a wonderful invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the reason why when you read the Gospels, children weren't afraid to just run up to Jesus. Women weren't afraid to approach him. Social outcasts were not afraid to approach him. Lepers would come to Jesus because he's humble, he's lowly, he's meek, he's approachable. And by the way, as the more I thought about this, if Jesus was that approachable, wouldn't it stand to reason that his followers would also be approachable? That in a similar way, his followers would, would be people who are inviting. You know, the ultimate call of Christ is to take off our pride and our arrogance, to take our place behind our king, and to be prepared to enjoy the freedom that we're not the center of the universe. That the true marks of Christ's followers are humility and service. And doesn't that stand to reason that the followers of the king who rides on a donkey are also humble and approachable? What a powerful picture. He rides in on a donkey. But the second thing I want you to know, and it's not here in John's gospel, but you gotta, you gotta know this to really get the fullness of the picture. Luke's gospel records it. The other gospels record it as well. But Jesus wept. If you wanna look at this later today, Luke 19, 41. Jesus wept. There's only three places in scripture where Jesus wept. He wept at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane. And he weeps right here. And you got to see this because it's the fullness of the picture. Kind of picture this with me. You've got Jesus riding in on this little donkey. And you got the crowd shouting. They're waving palm branches. They're laying down their cloaks. They believe that they're about to crush the Romans. 400 years of bondage is about to be over. And in the midst of all this excitement and all the uproar, you've got Jesus on a colt. And tears are filling his eyes. Because he understands what they don't. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this excitement, he's the only one who gets it. Jesus is the only one in this moment. The disciples, John tells us right here, the disciples didn't get it. They get it later, but they don't get it here. He's the only one, Jesus is the only one in this moment who truly knows what is coming 
Even in John 12, verse 27, it tells us that he was distressed. He's weeping. He's distressed. And I think the picture that we're intended to see here is that this is not some ancient hero going to his death as some kind of macho man. This is Jesus headed towards his glory, realizing how costly it's going to be for him to be lifted up. It's Jesus going into Jerusalem knowing that the shadow of Gethsemane is just around the corner. That the shadow of Calvary is just around the corner. The God forsakenness that he's about to endure is just around the corner. And knowing what he's about to do, all these people care about is more stuff. Jesus is about to pay The ultimate price to give them the ultimate gift. And all they can think about is more stuff. And we we would never make that mistake, would we? Let me share with you briefly two mistakes that these Jews make that I think we have to be careful not we don't make too. Number one, what mistakes they made. Number one, they misunderstood the gospel. They lost sight of the purpose of God and the purpose of the gospel. See, the the focus of the word of God, this is the focus of the word of God. The focus of the word of God is how do sinners like you and I get into the perfection of God's presence. That's the focus of scripture. How do sinners like you and me enter into the perfection of heaven? The question that most of the world is asking today is uh, how does a loving God send anyone to hell? The Bible's got no problem with that. No issue with that. See, when you understand that you have sinned in word and thought and deed against a righteous and holy God, when you begin to grasp that, the question is not how can a loving God send anyone to hell. The question is how am I ever going to get to heaven? That's the question of the Bible. I mean, just, just imagine if we came in this morning. Just imagine you entered this room and and all your personal sins were enumerated on the screens behind me. How many of you would even be able to to stay through the service if all your personal sins were flashed on that screen? Most of, I'd say all of us could not stand. In fact, if it happened, most of us wouldn't be able to live in this community any longer. But listen to me. The good news of the gospel is that Christ took all of my sin, all of my guilt, every evil thought and deed that I've ever done, and he bears it on the cross, and he snaps the chains of sin and Satan and death. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came in the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost of all. That the good news of the gospel is Christ came not to give me more stuff, but to die for my sins so that through faith in him I could have the forgiveness of sins. And I don't have to bear the guilt and the shame of my sin any longer. That I could say together with the hymn writer that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to him and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. Satisfied to look on Christ 
and pardon me. To look on Christ and pardon me. Folks, that is why Christ came. Christ didn't come to restore the national prosperity of Israel any more than he came to restore the national prosperity of America. And I want to be very careful here. But I believe that we make the same mistake as these Jews when we focus more attention upon the restoration of America than we do the salvation of our lost friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for our nation. In fact, we're commanded to do so. But when we focus more attention on the blessings of God on our nation than we do the salvation of the world, I think we have misunderstood the gospel and the purpose for which Christ came. And I think we've made the same mistake as this fickle crowd that when Jesus didn't deliver on the goodies, they walked away in disappointment. The great admonition of this text is don't ever lose sight of the gospel. Live the gospel, share the gospel, that Christ didn't come to give us more stuff, but to save us from our sins. He didn't come to give us our best life now, he came to give us our best life later. And if we lead people to faith in Christ on the basis of a better life now, they will probably abandon Christ when he doesn't act the way they want him to act, just like these Jews did in this instance. The greatest need of our lives is the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why Christ came. Secondly, they wanted blessing apart from repentance. The message of this crowd was we want blessing, but we don't want to change. And Jesus wept because they wanted economic and political blessing, but no one wanted to repent. And how often do we make the same mistake? God, I, I want your blessing upon my marriage, but I ain't changing. God, I want your blessing upon my marriage, but I'm going to live however I want to live. I'm going to do whatever I want. Folks, how is that going to work? Or God, I want your blessings upon my children. I want your good hand of favor upon my children, but I'm going to raise them however I want to raise them. I will not make your word the foundation of my home. I'm just going to pray you bless my kids. I want your blessing, but I don't want repentance. Before we ever ask God to change our circumstances, we better be asking God to change us. And the heart of God's followers the heart of Christ's followers is a continual heart of repentance. God, change me. As I was thinking about this, I, I, this moment for Israel probably wouldn't be that much different than, um, than an, an inauguration ceremony for one of our presidents. And imagine this. Imagine if, and I don't care what your political persuasions are, but imagine this, if we elected a president and the confetti flew, the balloons were everybody, and we do this every four years, about half our nation gets really excited because this guy's going to save the day, you know? But what if, instead of that guy getting up there and telling you about how he's going to save the nation, what if he got up there and fell on his knees and began to weep and said to us, we cannot know God's blessings apart from repentance. 
And so we want a nice economy and we want this great nice nation. But what we really need is the forgiveness of our sins and we better hit our knees in repentance. I don't know about you, but I'd vote for that guy. Problem is, I don't see many of them running. And if they do, they rarely make it very far. But that's the essence of what's happening. You want my blessings, but you don't want repentance. You don't want to change. And know this, as we study this, this is, Jesus is the rightful king. We're going to study this this week. He's going to go to the cross. He'll be rejected and he will die. He will conquer sin, Satan, and death. And he will return again someday. It's interesting, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies about how the Messiah would come and die. In fact, Genesis 3.15, we've already studied it. That he would, that somebody's going to come, a Christ is going to come, he's going to, He's going to make things right. He's going to put down Satan, but he'd be wounded in the transaction. All throughout the Old Testament, there's these prophecies that, that, that Christ would come and die for the sins of the people. There's also a lot of prophecies that he would come and he would put down evil and he would establish justice and righteousness and he would exalt the nation of Israel. And both of those things are true. The nation just choose to neglect the ones that talk about his suffering and die and focus on the others. But listen, the others are just as true. That one day he will return and one day he will establish justice and righteousness. In fact, the word of God pictures it before us. I'll read it to you this morning in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 beginning in verse 11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. He traded the Camry for a Sherman tank. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And make no mistake, that's not his blood. The picture is you're either covered in his blood or he'll be covered in yours. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's those of us that know him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that is who he is. He is a humble, lowly king who comes to die. And guess what he does today? He gives out the invitation that there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's peace. Bend the knee, trust me now. But if you will not, there is a day coming. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's really the essence of Psalm 2. You remember Psalm 2? Why are the nations rage and the people's in an uproar? The kings of the earth are devising a vain thing. They take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters off and cast away their cords from us. You know what the message of the world has always been? We don't want God or Jesus telling us what to do. We want to live however we want to live. We want to do whatever we want to do. In fact, I shared with the first service, 
I saw an interview, Don Lemon, just recently. He, he said, listen, uh, God is a God who lets people live how they want to live. He said, God is not a God who judges. And I want to say, you ain't read the Bible, have you? Because we just studied. He brought it down to eight people in Noah's day, you know? I mean, he judges. See what the world does. They just make God whoever they want him to be. They just make him in their own image, a God who lets them do whatever they want to do. But a God who tells them, the God of the Bible, who tells them how to live, they don't want him. But guess what the reaction of God is in heaven? He who sits in the heavens laughs. God says, that's funny. And then he says he'll speak to them in his anger and he'll terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king. Doesn't matter if you want him to be king or not. He is king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then Jesus speaks and says, I'll tell the decree of my Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them like a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Do you know what this world is? It's one word away from Christ coming back. Do you understand that today? One word away from it all coming down. So you know what the psalmist says? Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with trembling. Do homage to the son. You know what do homage means? It says bend the knee. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. He is king. He is the lowly king who came to die for your sins even when you didn't want him. And he is the only means of the forgiveness of your sins. He's the only means of salvation. If you are here today and you're watching online and you don't know him, bend the knee today. But know this, if you won't bow willingly today, there's a day coming when you will bow forcibly. And I wish, boy, I could stay here all afternoon. John 12, you know what? It gets even better. I jumped in John and said, boy, I think I want to preach through John now. But you know what, John, he, the Greeks come. It's powerful. He says, the, what, we're not doing any good. The Pharisees, we're not doing any good. Look, the whole world's coming. And guess what happens next? The Greeks come to him. And the Greeks say, we just, we just want to see Jesus. You know what Jesus tells them? Anyone who wishes to save his life must lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to be very clear with you this morning. If you'll bend the knee to Jesus, you have to go all in. The problem that I have found that so many people have in trusting in Jesus is that there's things in their life they don't want to let go of. They're like little kids holding on to their stuff, holding on to stuff for salvation or security. I don't know what it is for you. Some people it's money, wealth, influence, a job. Maybe it's even family. But it's excruciatingly painful for you to even think about trusting in Christ because you know in order to trust him, you've got to let go. And you don't want to let go. And you know what you need to do this morning? You need to cry out to God to pry it out of your hands. You ever had to do this with a child that won't let go? What do you got to do? You got to go to them and you got to pry it open. And some of you need to say, God, I want to trust you, but it is painful. I need you to pry my hands open. And you know what you do? You take those things you're clinging to and you drop them in the hands of Jesus. Because the fact of the matter is you can't secure them anyway. You're trying to secure your family? You can't. You're not big enough to secure your family. 
You're trying to secure your life with finances or wealth or a job. You can't secure your life. The only security you can truly have in this world is found in Jesus. And you drop those things into his hands and you find the peace that he gives. And then and only then can you truly enjoy the blessings that he's given you. And I'm just asking what would prevent you from bending the knee today and trusting all in Christ. That's why he came. Because he loves you. And he wants you to know his life. And he wants you to know his peace. So that you don't have to know his judgment. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for Palm Sunday. And we thank you for the king who rides on. And he will ride on in faithfulness and obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And they, there he will conquer our, our greatest enemy, which is sin, Satan, and death, so that we could have life through faith in him. God, if there's anybody here this morning that's never trusted in Christ, I pray this morning, I pray with all my heart that their eyes would be open to the depth of their sin. They would see the beauty of Christ and they would trust in him. Lord, we know that salvation is your work. I can't talk anybody into salvation. If I could talk them into it, somebody else would talk them out of it. But God, you have ways I know not of. Just as you worked in each of our lives who know you, you just peeled back the blinders and there came a moment where we saw you for who you truly were, who you truly are. We saw ourselves in our sin and we trusted in Christ. I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, they would trust in Christ. God, for those of us that do know you, God, I know even myself, my sinful heart and my sinful flesh how easy it is to lose sight of the gospel we may have a lot of other things in our life a lot of other things that are valuable and important but everything pales in comparison to Jesus and the gospel and so I pray that the gospel would be the passion of our life in whatever we do wherever we go that the passion of our life would be to worship the one who saved us and to tell others about the hope that can be found in him. Help us to be clear in our gospel presentation, even this morning, if there's anybody here, I pray that they would know with great clarity that just because they trust in Christ doesn't mean that everything will suddenly go well. Because you didn't come to necessarily better their life in a physical way here. You came to die for their sins. Help us to be truthful in our gospel presentation and trust you to do the work of conviction. But God, let us never lose sight of the gospel. Let us be a people with a heart of repentance before we ask for your blessings. May we ask you to change us. Mold us. Don't give up on us, God. We we need you. We love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name.